This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. The way I'm going to uh, do the talk tonight is I'm going to start out and uh, give you my presentation. And at the appropriate time at the end, I'm going to bring on Amanda to uh, talk a little bit about the exercise side of things. And then Angie's gonna come on and talk about the diet side of things. Then I'm gonna come back uh, after they've finished. Here we are, prevention of uh, of heart disease, what you, uh, I put in parentheses your doctor because this is really largely you. um, And the dialogue you have with your doctor uh, should be um, as an informed, uh, patient. We really hope uh, for that from, from all of our patients. So this is the outline for tonight. So I'm going to introduce the idea of prevention to you. Um, we're really going to focus on a tool that is, I, I think, is an excellent tool. It's the American Heart Association's Life's Essential 8. Um, you may remember that a couple of years ago, it was actually seven. And we're going to talk about how it got to eight in the last year uh, during during the talk. We're gonna go with modifiable versus non-modifiable risk factors. And basically that boils down to health behaviors and then then health factors and and risk factors for for atherosclerotic disease. As I said, I'm gonna dissect the essential eight. I'm gonna give you some historical perspective because this is a mini medical school. And I I think you should should at least have a couple of slides of, of what was the basis of what we do in, uh, in the prevention arena today. It's uh, something when I bring it up, I will uh, urge you to give some consideration to doing some homework or, uh, or something after the talk, uh, because it, the Framingham study really is the basis of just about every other subsequent uh, cohort study trying to look at the epidemiology around cardiovascular diseases and uh, it's stood the test of time. This is year 75 uh, of the Framingham Heart Study, just uh, FYI. Again, I'm gonna have the comments on diet and exercise from uh, Amanda and from Angie, and I'm gonna come back and we're gonna gonna sum up at the end. So frequently we, uh, when we give talks uh, like this, we, we include a disclosure side, which, which basically says that uh, if, if somebody's paying us, uh, we're on the, Speakers Bureau for somebody, we should disclose that. I'm not. So I have no disclosures, uh, but I do have some disclaimers. And so I want to say right up front that what I'm presenting tonight, this is my approach to the subject of prevention. I've developed my approach through my review of the medical literature, through my discussions with my colleagues and with my own professional experience. You may say, uh, while I'm giving presentation, you'll, you'll think in your own mind, you'll go, well, that's different than what my doctor said, or that's different than what I've read. And I would just say that uh, the old saying that reasonable people can agree to disagree um, can, and in fact, uh, is, is maybe pertinent for, for some things with uh, a specific comment towards the next uh, bullet point, which is that I'm really a statin believer and unabashedly so. Um, I believe that they should uh, obviously not be in the water, but I think that that we should use them liberally. I think they're some of the best tolerated medications that uh, that we have, and and really the uh, hist- historical 
uh, review of their use has really uh, stood the test of time. So first, let me just say uh, what you don't have to do. So the things that you don't have to do to try to uh, improve your risk, uh, and, and that's you don't have to be a monk. So you don't have to go uh, uh, sequester yourself on the top of a mountain and uh, and avoid uh, all, all the things that we say are, are good and, and fun. It's not uh, what we're asking you to do. We're not asking you to eat like a bird, be a grain eater, unless that's exactly what you wanna be. Angie will have more comments about this, um, but diet's a very, very important piece to partner with our patients uh, and not ask them to do draconian steps that are not likely to be sustainable over time. And then to talk about bring to the idea of what is what is prevention. And so for that, we have to kind of answer the question of whose events are we trying to prevent? And in the cardiovascular prevention uh, arena, we really bucket things into two major uh, strategies. One is called primary prevention strategy. The other is called secondary prevention strategies. And, and what this talk is really going to focus mostly on is going to be primary prevention, not secondary prevention. And primary prevention, as it says, aims to deliver advice and guidance to prevent onset of disease or illness, basically preventing the first event. Secondary prevention programs, on the other hand, aim to detect and treat a disease process to prevent it from progressing or happening a second time. And so for, for us in, the, in, in this, uh, again, in the, in the cardiovascular, prevention space, we would say that we're going to spend most of our time talking about this. And the reason for this is because the secondary prevention uh, uh, programs, those I've had a heart attack, I've had a stroke, I've, uh, I've been diagnosed with coronary artery disease, I've been diagnosed with peripheral arterial disease, or I have some diagnosis. The, the, the treatment strategies for those patients are incredibly well established in, uh, in medicine. And uh, we, we throw around a term that I, I probably will use at some point during the talk tonight, something called the number needed to treat or the NNT. And basically that's a number where we would say, I need to treat this number of people to prevent one event. And we know that in secondary prevention, where the likelihood of having a second event once you've had a first event is certainly going to be higher than if you've never had an event, that number needed to treat is relatively low and certainly lower than in primary prevention strategies where the person's not had an event. They may not even have any risk factors, but generally we talk about the risk factors and, and family history and things like that. And the number needed to treat in a primary prevention approach is always going to be higher than the number needed to treat in a secondary prevention program. And so this is sometimes where we, we try to, again, dialogue with the patient. And I want to emphasize this uh, now and then also in the future, that, that many times the, the, the right there is no real right answer when we're talking to any individual patient about risk. It's really trying to mitigate risk, minimize risk, and the risk tolerance of any patient has to be considered. And again, it has, this has to be an informed consent decision with a patient, whether or not the, you're consenting to taking a medication, consenting to changing a behavior, 
or consenting to have an invasive procedure. It's very, it's just critical that you have a relationship uh, and a dialogue with, uh, with your physician. So as I said, I'm kind of going to focus uh, today's talk on, on something that the American Heart Association has, has published as Life's Essential Eight. And each one of these little cartoons, of course, speaks to what one of those eight uh, areas of prevention strategies. Now, the one that I'd like to, to get off the table first, because it's the, uh, the, the lowest hanging fruit in this, is really smoking. Um, and really, we're talking about smoking anything, and that includes vaping. So anything that you inhale into your lungs has a biologic effect that is not uh, in your favor. And of course, this started with, with just plain old cigarette smoking. And this has been, uh, been well known uh, in uh, this publication. So I'm going to show you some data slides as we go through this as how, again, how we uh, as physicians and has me as a preventive cardiologist have come up with, uh, with the approach that we take. And basically, the, this relative risk is, uh, plays off against one. And that basically says, if I, my relative risk of something is two, then I would have a twofold risk of developing something. And in this case, the developing something is myocardial infarction, which is the, the medical term for a heart attack. And this is, as you can see on the, on the, uh, on the chart, it, if you smoke anything, your risk, your relative risk, whether or not you're a man or a woman, is much, much higher than if you've been a never smoker. And then again, we'll talk about the ex-smoking side in just a, a slide or two. Um, but what you'll notice is that the risk for women is greater than men. So it's even, uh, it's critical that everybody stops smoking. But um, for, for women, it's particularly critical because the relative risk of a heart attack with smoking exposure is uh, is the greatest for women. So this is, uh, just pulled this slide out of one of the publications. Uh, according to American Heart Association, cardiovascular disease counts for 800,000 deaths, probably actually over a million now, making it the leading cause of all deaths. And the, the estimate is that 20% are directly due to cigarette smoking. So obviously that's a, a very large number. Furthermore, secondhand smoke, this is the exposure because your parents smoked or because you work in a bar where there's a lot of, uh, uh, of smoking. Secondhand smoke is, is also a risk for coronary heart disease. And uh, the estimation, at least uh, as written here, is that people who are ex exposed to secondhand smoke and with a regular basis have a 25 to 30% increased risk of coronary heart disease than those that don't have that exposure. The estimation uh, at the time of this publication was that 30,000 U.S. coronary heart disease deaths were, in fact, related to secondhand smoke. So it's not a small number and, uh, and really is luck luckily uh, here in California, for sure. But in many other states, the uh, smoking was, has been prohibited in indoor uh, bars and, and restaurants to the benefit of, of all of us. And so the, the, this is what I was referring to. So the quitting smoking and uh, benefiting your heart in this graphic um, is basically once you quit, things get better uh, very quickly. So uh, the, the far right is the one that I like to focus on uh, for most of my patients when we're trying to, to get them through this addiction is that within four years of quitting the risk of stroke, and we could extend that actually to uh, many of the atherosclerotic uh, events. 
drops to that of, of lifetime non-smokers. So this is, is really so important. You've probably seen um, uh, some data that when we do very sophisticated uh, examinations of arterial health, in other words, how healthy is, uh, is somebody's arterial tree, again, with very sophisticated testing, that we can show that within minutes of smoking, that the functioning of the lined cells that line the blood vessels, the endothelial cells, becomes uh, grossly abnormal. That's just with, with one exposure. So you can imagine what a lifetime of exposure uh, does to endothelial and vascular health. So it's really, as I say, it's the lowest hanging fruit in trying to reduce risk uh, of cardiovascular events. So we're gonna move quickly to uh, sort of the elephants in the room. And the elephants in the room, of course, are, are blood pressure, treatment of, of uh, high blood pressure and treatment of the lipid abnormalities. And I'm gonna approach these uh, sequentially for you. This is a beautiful slide that I just love to show because it's so pretty, uh, showing a scanning electron micrograph of cholesterol uh, crystals uh, uh, that these are the things that get stuck in your ar artery wall. I'm just going to digress for just one second uh, because it comes up all the time in the, in the clinic. Um, oh, you know, Doc, when, when did I get that plaque? And um, unfortunately, historically, we, we know from the Vietnam uh, era of 18 to 22, 25-year-old men who were killed traumatically, that when their arterial system was investigated at the time of autopsy, that they already, some of them already had evidence of something that's called a fatty streak. And a fatty streak is the very, very first uh, uh, showing of lipid cholesterol being deposited in the artery wall. It's called a fatty streak because that's what it looks like. It looks like somebody took a paintbrush and drew a line in the, in the artery using yellow uh, paint. Uh, it looks like fat and it's the very first sign. So if that's present in 18 to 22 year old men, that means that over time from 18 to 22 till 30 to 35 to 40 to 60, that that, that uh, deposition just gets more and more and more as your, uh, as your cholesterol remains uh, elevated. So a uh, pretty picture, but not such a pretty uh, substance to have in your artery wall. So here's where I wanna just take a step back uh, from the, from the uh, as a teacher and bring to your attention, if you didn't know about it, uh, that the Framingham Heart Study, and it's based, as you can well imagine, and according to this slide, in Framingham, Massachusetts. There's lots of reasons why it ended up in Framingham, but it, it, its initiation was in 1948. That's what I said, 1948. This is year 75. 2023 will be the 75th year of the Framingham Heart Study. And what it did, and had never been done before, was say, is it possible for us to take patients at a time when they have no disease. So in other words, just walked into the doctor's office and said, I am here for my annual physical. I've never had a heart attack. I've never had a stroke. I've never had any of those things. And they said, if we, if we enroll these patients and we follow them over time, um, we should be able to see 
because uh, some of them will ultimately develop uh, the events that we're interested in. And because this was a National Heart Institute, now the National Heart, Lung and Blood Institute or the National Institutes of Health, they were focused on, on heart disease. Um, so they said, okay, well, we're gonna just enroll people in this cloistered community. It already had a very uh, prominent role in tuberculosis research earlier in the, in the century, 1900s. And so there was already an appreciation at the community level about uh, what such a trial might mean for the future. And I want you to focus on the fact that, that um, just like in a clinical trial, there may have not been any benefit to any patient who, who said, oh, I'll be part of that trial. They were doing so as a, in an altruistic way. I mean, not to say that they didn't get any benefit because they got yearly exams and, and testing done, but they really were doing this as a, as a way of contributing to the, our understanding of cardiovascular diseases and the things that lead to it. And that framing, initial Framingham cohort uh, was followed into their adult life. I'm gonna show you some data from the very first publications uh, from the Framingham study. It then subsequently enrolled the children of the original participants, that's called the offspring cohort. So in other words, the children of the original people were then also enrolled. And those, those, that uh, cohort is also being followed. And, and uh, at 75 years, as you can well imagine, we're now could be into the third generation. And it has really revolutionized. The Framingham Heart Study has revolutionized the way we approach patients and has uh, really made our understanding of the risk factors uh, for heart disease, uh, what we what we have today. So this was the uh, the first publication, uh, 1951, that basically laid out. This is what we're going to try to do in the Framingham Heart Study. Brand new, as it says, this is the National Heart Institute, as I said, uh, 1951, describing what they were going to subsequently do. Their first publication was in 1957. And again, for the very first time, they really looked at three things that they thought were probably going to be uh, play a role in the development of, of atherosclerotic heart disease. And that was blood pressure, weight, which we could, we could say relates to physical activity, uh, uh, et cetera, and cholesterol. And as you can see, going from the left uh, of this screen, where all three of these were normal. You had normal blood pressure, you had normal uh, uh, weight and normal cholesterol, all the way over to the far right where everything is abnormal, that there's this sort of linear graded increase that there is no cut point. Oh, if I just have one of these three things, I'm gonna be okay. If you just have one of these things, you still are at elevated risk. This is the very, very first publication, 1957. So that that's 65 years ago or so, uh, the very first appreciation of the role that these things uh, played in it. So from a historical perspective, again, uh, uh, really kind of um, set the benchmark for what we needed to do. Then they uh, subsequent a publication, again, just uh, basically 10 years into this, into the study, looked at the left side of this is the six-year incidence of coronary disease according to cholesterol. And then each one of the individual lines 
looks at the systolic. That's the upper number. When you get your blood pressure, you get an upper number and a lower number. That upper number is the systolic number. That uh, shows that as your serum cholesterol increases and your systolic blood pressure increases, that the incidence of, of coronary heart disease goes from a low of let's say 1% incidence all the way up to 25 to 30%. So very clearly these two uh, uh, risk factors now, and that's the very first time that we actually referred to blood pressure and cholesterol as a risk factor uh, was through the, this, this Framingham report in 1961. And over on the right, basically uh, broke out the, the cholesterol uh, association in men and women. Again, the higher the cholesterol, the and this is uh, this is uh, total cholesterol. Uh, the, the higher the cholesterol for both men and women were uh, directly associated with that, the incidence of coronary heart disease. Men strongly so, and, and a little bit stronger than women. Um, but remember, this is ages 40 to 59. So this is a lot of the women were premenopausal and therefore uh, somewhat protected on the basis of hormonal status. And then this is something that if you've ever ever been to a cholesterol talk, um, this is a slide that frequently makes its way uh, into the presentation. It's a busy slide. Um, I want you to focus on a couple of things. So the first thing I want you to focus on is just what we talked about, which was this whole idea of of number needed to treat. And so the patient events over on the left-hand side, and then the primary prevention uh, patients, that's this gray line at the bottom here. So it's lower than all the others. And the reason it's lower than all the others is that these were trials where patients were enrolled having never had any events. And they were randomized to having a therapy that would lower their cholesterol. And so the other thing I want you to focus on is the yellow versus the, the red. And basically it's the population that was, that was enrolled in the trial. The yellow are those people who were randomized in the trial to a placebo pill. So their cholesterol was, was elevated. As you can see here, the, L, the cholesterol LDL here, this is the, the low density lipoprotein, the bad cholesterol that we, we like to demonize, that these were the patients who had elevated cholesterol LDL and were randomized to a sugar pill. The red uh, triangle are the patients in that same trial who were randomized to active treatment, statin. Of course, across these different trials, different statins might be simvastatin, some might be Lipitor or, or atorvastatin. So it's, it's not important to know which statin, just important to know that they were randomized to active treatment. And what you can see is that for both the primary prevention patients, again, lower the lower line because the number of events will be lower. And the secondary prevention trial, again, patients who've already had an event and were trying to prevent their second event, that in all cases, that the, the placebo arm, the yellow uh, uh, diamond, when compared to the red diamond, so the name of the trial, is at the top, and you see there's two, two dots for every trial name. And in every case, the red diamond, the treatment group, all had lower event rates over the subsequent follow-up in every single case. Now, again, 
I want to just emphasize again, the primary, the reason that the primary prevention, the gray line, and this is basically just a, a linear regression line that tries, that tries to say, okay, well, here were the numbers in the patients, both in the placebo and in the treatment arms. And it sort of follows a line of regression. And we'd say, okay, well, um, what, where should we, what should our target be in terms of an LDL in primary and secondary prevention patients? And so what it would say is that if you look at the, at the graph or the, the numbers on the bottom here on the LDL cholesterol, you see it goes all the way from a low here of 70 all the way to an LDL of 200 on the far right. And so what one would, would say is, okay, well, does this inform what our targets should be in these different uh, patient groups? But again, the, the gray line, which is primary prevention, which is what we're going to focus mostly on tonight, is, has fewer events. But regardless of that, there still is a, a linear regression and a downward trend of event rates in the treatment arms versus the placebo arms for these trials. And, and this, is, this is an old slide, 1999, I think, is when this is from. But this has is, this is historically always been the case. It's never been refuted. Uh, by any subsequent uh, trial that treatment has been uh, in any way not an improvement over placebo. So two recent very uh, interesting articles. This one was a model trying to look at the effectiveness of cholesterol-lowering treatment in, in primary prevention. Again, so the patients that I said we were going to talk about never had an event, don't want to have one, trying to prevent that. And so in this uh, report out of this year, busy slide, really straightforward. The only thing I want you to take from it is that basically, if one looks at the number needed to treat, again, the number of patients that we would need to treat to prevent one event over a 10-year follow-up would say, okay, well, let's look at people who have relatively normal cholesterol or that the, the the colors are an LDL cholesterol of 100 over here, an LDL cholesterol of 70. So it's going to obviously be different depending on where you started. But the number needed to treat, as you see over these different lines, is really quite modest for certainly for the patients where we have elevations in uh, their LDL or total cholesterol is less than 100. And that's kind of a benchmark. When we talk about what, whether or not something is worth treating or not. We, we say, oh, well, if a number needed to treat is under 100, we would say, oh, if we have to treat 100 people to save one event or one life, that's, that's probably an effective strategy unless, of course, that strategy would have a high harm rate. And so the other thing that you'll sometimes see in, in these uh, in these reports is they do a number needed to treat, NNT, and a number needed to harm, an NNH. And of course, what we want is we want a very good number needed to treat. Uh, so a low number of patients to treat to prevent one event or one death. And we want a number needed to harm, it would be quite high, because we'd like to say that the likelihood of harm with uh, serious harm is is way uh, overcompensated by a low number needed to treat. So that's the whole point of, of uh, showing you this relatively busy slide is that, that across the continuum, 
the higher your cholesterol and the higher your LDL, the lower the number needed to treat becomes in order to prevent an event. And this is this again, this is a mathematical model, but follows the, the natural history as we know it. Another uh, report from, from this past year looked at uh, all cause mortality. So not just uh, cardiovascular disease, but all cause mortality. And it is a review and what's called a meta-analysis which again um, is something we toss around a lot in the medical literature. literature. And basically a meta-analysis is a report that's tried to put together a bunch of different trials. So there was one trial that was done by this group uh, then, and published, and then there was another trial done by this other investigative group. And it tries to put them all together in order to create the strength of numbers. So you can just imagine if I said, well, I'm going to do a trial of 100 people and 50 people are going to get this pill and 50 people are going to get, get uh, a placebo, that the strength of those conclusions from a 100 patient trial is going to be quite a bit lower than the 1,000, the 10,000, the 20,000, the 100,000 patient trial. And so because it's frequently not cost effective to do the 100 or 200,000 patient trial, a meta-analysis tries to take a bunch of trials that were of lower numbers, group them together and statistically say, can I, can I now make some conclusions from uh, putting all of these trials and their patients together? That's what a meta-analysis is. So this basically was a meta-analysis published that investigated the association between statin use and mortality in patients that had some, some other uh, underlying or comorbidity. It might be lung disease, it could be could have the uh, diabetes, that's the most common. And it basically just tried to say, you know, can we create an argument that says that this was beneficial in, in this group of patients? And, and of course, I wouldn't be showing you to if the answer wasn't yes. So as it says, the pooled estimate showed that statin use associated with significant reduction in all-cause mortality with a, the hazard ratio, meaning what's the likelihood of, of, uh, of improvement of this 0.68 to 0.76 would basically says a 24% or 25% reduction, uh, relative reduction in event rates. It says there was significant heterogeneity, meaning that, of course, there's lots of, of patients in this, in these uh, evaluation and these trials, lots of other comorbid uh, illnesses, diabetes, as I say, hypertension, lots of other things. And so you might say, well, this subgroup had more of a benefit but um, they, as a whole, they all uh, showed the same benefit, but there was perhaps some differences between different subgroups, but the overall conclusion is benefit. So this is sort of has been uh, subsequently followed by advice that comes from not, not just the cardiology uh, field, the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology, but also the US Preventative Task Force and, and the U.S. Preventative Task Force comes out with uh, these conclusions, summary statements periodically about a lot of stuff. They, they have uh, opined about vaccination. They've opined about diabetes. This is really the, 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 one of the recent 2016 uh, reports on purely the use of statins for prevention, so primary prevention. Uh, of cardiovascular events. So this was one of the 
ones from 2016. I'm going to show you an update from from just this past year. But this graphic is is I think is a is a good cartoon because it basically asks the questions that that we as physicians and you as patients really want to to bring in as you're thinking about this. And so basically this was the framework was adults greater than 40 years of age, no prior events. So again, primary prevention. They wanted to look at their cardiovascular risk factors, 10 year or lifetime, very important, 10 year risk or lifetime risk. And then they wanted to say, okay, so here are the key questions. Number one, what are the benefits of statins in reducing incidence of a cardiovascular disease-related morbidity or mortality, or all-cause mortality in an asymptomatic patient? What are the benefits of statin treatment to a target, to achieve a target LDL level? Do any of the benefits vary in subgroups according to race, ethnicity, uh, or socioeconomic sort of things? And then importantly, what are the harms of statin treatment? And how do benefits and harms vary according to the policy uh, or the potency of the statin. So in other words, potent statins with a very low uh, cholesterol target, LDL or total cholesterol target. And then again, the, the end point that we're interested in is are these events, uh, morbidity and mortality or all cause mor mor uh, mortality. And these are, again, busy slide. I only want you to focus on um, the very bottom of this, which I've blown up for you. And these are what's called, these are called point estimates. And it, the easy thing to remember is if the risk is one, it means that there's no benefit and, but there's also no, you know, basically no harm. And so as you can see at the top of this dotted line, if the point estimate, the big box is on the left side of the dotted line at 1.0, it means that there's net benefit. If the point estimate is to the right of the dotted line, then we would say there must be harm because it would favor the control arm, I mean, the person who got the sugar pill. And so the reason why there's, uh, as you go down these individual trials, which are listed on the left-hand side, the reason why some of the boxes are big, uh, some of the squares are small, some of the lines that go left and right are long, and some of them are short, it basically is a reflection of the number of people that were involved in the trial, and then the disparity, the, the standard deviation in, in, a, in a way to look at it that way. That's the length of the line. So small trials, as I, as I sort of alluded to, that 50 patient, 100 patient trial, 50 active treatment, 50 placebo, it's basically going to have a relatively large deviation from a very small box. But if you go down to the bottom, that, tri that uh, diamond shape, that basically is the meta-analysis that looks at, takes all of these trials together and says, taken in totality, if I'm to the left of the line, as this diamond is, it means that for all-cause mortality, it favored the, the patients who were randomized to the treatment, statin treatment arm. Same thing is going to be true for cardiovascular mortality. So that was, that was all-cause mortality. And then again, blowing it up here, the, the meta-analysis of all these trials falls to the left of the line of unity, meaning there is net benefit in the statin patients in this analysis. So again, very consistent uh, story over time. The 2022 update has some 
the caveats, which I think we are important to, to, uh, to hone in on here. So basically, they, uh, they now, six years later, they've come up with this update. And they said, I put in bold here the things that I think we want to pay attention to. And it says that the U.S. Preventative uh, Task Force recommends that clinicians prescribe, so they give you a prescription for a statin for primary prevention of cardiovascular disease for adults aged 40 to 75 who have one or more risk factors, and they're telling you what they are, high lipids, diabetes, hypertension, smoking, and, and an estimated 10-year risk of 10% or greater. So this says under that, that calculation, if you're between 40 and 75, that clinicians are recommended that a clinician prescribe a statin food. Next, it says they recommend that clinicians selectively offer a statin. So again, informed consent dialogue with the patient for primary prevention in adults 40 to 75 who have one or more and an estimated risk of 7.5% to less than 10%. The reason that they said this is that um, before that really around the 2016 recommendations, this 10-year risk of 7.5% was was kind of the one that was out there in the in the in the in the uh, clinical arena. We would do these calculations and I'll, I'll kind of go over that. That really based largely on Framingham data, we would calculate a 10-year risk. And if that 10-year risk was 7.5% or more, we said, you should probably be on a statin. And so the 2022 update sort of mitigated that original and, and, and went back, said 10% is really the hard and fast line. And between 75 to 10%, 10-year risk calculation, that you should have a dialogue, selectively offer a statin um, to, the, to the patients. This is important. And, and the reason why I'm sort of harping on this is that this, if you uh, address 10-year risk, the 10-year risk and lifetime risk are two different calculations. You can do them both. On uh, There's an app on your phone. You can get, it's called ASCVD risk. You go in, you fill in your age, your sex, your race, your uh, cholesterol numbers, your blood pressure numbers, and it'll give you a 10-year risk number. That's that 7.5 or 10. But it'll also, in the, in the younger age group, it will also give you a lifetime risk. And I think a light, I think we sometimes gloss over a lifetime risk in a relatively young, so 40 to 50, 55-year-old patient compared to a 75-year-old patient, where 10 years might be their actuarial survival. So their lifetime risk and their 10-year risk should be kind of the same. But for a 40-year-old, the 10-year risk and the lifetime risk may be different and in fact frequently are. And I believe it's important to when you're when we're counseling patients on treatment or no treatment to sort of uh, be cognizant of the fact that we are really looking at lifetime risk for for patients, and that may vary uh, depending on their age going going into that. And then just I I, I put this in as a transition slide because we're we're, gonna, we're not going to talk about cholesterol anymore. Now we're going to talk a little bit about blood pressure. And this was just again that uh, that original Framingham. A report showing that the, the systolic blood pressure was was equally important and additive to serum cholesterol for risk. So here's a 2020 report 
that looked at two different endpoints, coronary heart disease or stroke, uh, coronary heart disease or stroke, looked at diastolic and systolic uh, pressure. What I want you to, doesn't matter whether or not we're looking at log risk, where we've done a logarithmic transformation of data, or if we've looked at absolute risk, which is what's on the right side with the, the pervilinear lines, that for all patients at all ages, there is a gradation of event rate or risk, the higher that blood pressure goes. So on the bottom, we have systolic, we have diastolic, that's the lower number. Again, remember when you get a blood pressure, there's a top number and a bottom number. The top number is the systolic. I call that the, the pressure that's generated when your heart contracts, shoots blood out. That's that upper number. And then when your heart is relaxing, that's the lower number. And that I like to think about diastolic as being resting tone and systolic is the, the pressure that's generated when the heart contracts. They both have a correlation. The higher they are, the more events that we have. And it, again, it's certainly easily and visual in a log transformation of risk, which is on the left side of this panel, where as you can see, lower is always better at every age group. Also recent trial, uh, just out actually, I think three months ago, in uh, nature medicine, asking um, effects of elevated systolic blood pressure in, in ischemic heart disease, it's called a burden of proof study. And basically, again, we're just hit with the same data over and over and over again, that if one looks at risk, as one goes from a systolic blood pressure, again, the bottom uh, here, it number is 120, to higher systolic numbers, that one has increased risk of events and a, uh, this is a relative risk over here uh, of, of, up to, of up to 5%. So it's not insignificant. Now this is, is looking at when we started at 110, it, it, um, there were varied uh, graphs in this particular publication. But again, what I want you to take away from this is that higher is not better and that the cut point or the, the number that we are generally trying to achieve is going to be 120 or less, because uh, that appears to be where there's this breakthrough. This is uh, was a review, and I brought this out because I wanted you to uh, to focus a little bit on how risk factors uh, accumulate. Uh, more risk factors you have, the higher your risk of some event is going to be. And so, if we look at over in the far left, upper left corner, we have no risk factors and a relatively normal. Now, this is a study from a number of years ago, so don't fixate too much on what they're calling normal 130 to 139, because we don't think this is normal anymore. But, but basically, the point being that as one accumulates risk factors and one accumulates higher and higher blood pressure, one goes from no relatively no risk to low risk to moderate to very uh, very high risk. So both of these things are really important. It's not just we don't just say, yeah, as long as we get your blood pressure under control, it doesn't matter what else is going on. It's really the, the constellation of risk that we want to think. So this is our current uh, uh, trying to help patients understand normal, not normal. And so we've categorized this. And if you have an app on your phone that your blood pressure downloads to, it will usually color code them as green up to red. And so you'll see that we consider normal 
in uh, in the medical field, and particularly in the cardiovascular event rate and risk field, that a normal blood pressure is a systolic, an upper number of lower than 120, and and a diastolic, the lower number of less than 80. And if either one, uh, the elevated blood pressure would be if you had a 120 to 129 and you had an 80 uh, or above, that you would be called, that's sort of called uh, pre-hypertension, that 120 to 129 over 80, that if you are 130 to 139, or so either the upper number or the lower number are in an abnormal range, we call that stage one hypertension. If you, the upper number is 140 or higher and the diastolic is 90 or higher, we call that stage two hypertension. And then obviously if you had numbers that were even higher than those listed in the red, we call that, uh, you know, this is high blood pressure that requires sort of urgent therapy. But the key here is that we have to look at both numbers and we have to say, are both normal? Is, are they both abnormal? Is one normal and the other abnormal? And, and how do we approach this? And this can be kind of vexing um, when the only number that's abnormal is the lower number, the diastolic blood pressure, that resting basal tone, because that usually is a, is a strong reflection of stiffness. And so, uh, and that goes with age, it goes with uh, longstanding, uh, uh, with, certainly with diabetes. And, uh, and also with atherosclerosis, cholesterol deposits. But it's important to understand we, we need to focus on, on both of the numbers. Okay, finish with cholesterol, finish hopefully uh, if you've uh, uh, understood where we're going in terms of, uh, of cholesterol control, blood pressure control. Now let's look at, uh, at the diabetes, the story of diabetes and glucose in, in, intolerance. So we know uh, that a patient who has frank diabetes has a higher event rate and that patients with diabetes have, have um, already sort of one risk. Um, and that means that we, we need to be particularly aggressive. But now I'm gonna focus on not the frankly diabetic patient. I'm gonna, I'm gonna focus on the patient who just has some abnormalities in the way that they handle dietary uh, carbohydrates. And so that's this, this publication, again, from the Birmingham Heart Study from, from uh, 15 years ago, tried to say, okay, well, let's look at patients. These aren't diabetic. These are patients who just have an abnormal fasting uh, glucose. So you go, you have your annual physical, you, know, you had blood drawn, they said, uh, you know, don't eat anything after midnight. We're going to get the fasting uh, values. So these are just patients who have an abnormality in their fasting. So Framingham offspring, so this is the second cohort, again, free of cardiovascular disease, were categorized by two different definitions of impaired fasting glucose. One was if it's 110 to 125, that was the 1997 criteria. The 2003 definition was more strict. It said 100. 125. And then they were followed for the next 20 years. And they said, okay, well, what, what happened to the, the, these patients? And the simple answer is that the worst your, your fasting glucose was, the worse your prognosis was. This is a survival curve. So these are curves of people who were, uh, you were either alive, you either survived, or you didn't. 
over the subsequent four years from the original part of the trial. As you can see, the green line, these are the patients with frank diabetes and they have the worst prognosis. But look at the top, the blue line are the people who are normal. So that's normal glucose tolerance. That's what NGT stands for. And then there's a graded increase in risk, even with this very modest uh, changes in fasting glucose numbers. So paying attention to that, you know what? Uh, if, my, if my number comes back 120, it's not, it's not the end of the world. You'd say, no, it's not the end of the world, but it's not normal. It means that we have to pay attention to that. Uh, this is sort of the same issue, fasting glucose with cardiovascular disease in the absence of risk factors. This is a, a study outside of the US, but basically the same basic idea. We looked at patients with fasting plasma glucose between 70 and 125 at a baseline. Did follow-up of 11 years, mean follow-up. What did we find? Same thing. The worse your fasting numbers were, the more likely it was that you were going to have an event. So very important uh, uh, data. Okay, here's how we got to the Life's Essential 8 from, from AHA's Simple 7. That was the first, it was called the Life's Simple, or the AHA's Simple 7. And it was sleep. And this is something that's been a been kind of a favorite of mine uh, for at least a decade. And that is the appreciation that sleep quality, quality of sleep is plays a really, really important role in subsequent uh, disease processes, not just cardiovascular disease. And, and so a slide I borrowed from one of my good friends, Andrew Crystal, who's one of the sleep medicine people at UCSF and the Department of Psychiatry looks at the health consequences of what's called obstructive sleep apnea. So this is a frankly abnormal uh, patient with, with true obstructive sleep apnea. And there's an increase in risk of cardiovascular disease. Again, odds ratio, three times chance of having an event. That includes heart failure, arrhythmias. Uh, uh, Dr. Marcus probably spent some time talking, uh, introducing this topic with atrial fibrillation. It's very clearly a risk of atrial fibrillation that uh, goes down. Hypertension has a tenfold increase in patients with obstructive sleep apnea and stroke. So all of these things are downstream consequences of sleep disordered breathing. It's also linked to metabolic syndrome. That's uh, again, one step closer to diabetes. I don't handle uh, dietary carbohydrates normally. And it's an increased risk of stroke or death from any cause. So, so certainly uh, we are now appreciating the importance why does this happen? So here's again uh, from, from Andrew, a pathophysiology slide over here on the left. What happens when you have a disordered breathing? You get uh, low oxygen, that's what hypoxia means. The autonomic nervous system, that's the, the non-volitional nervous system, has some dysfunction. You clearly change your arousal and you disrupt sleep. You change the pressure changes within the, the chest cavity and the, uh, the CO2, the carbon dioxide that we normally blow off begins to, will begin to accumulate. So that's the pathophysiology. That leads to these disease mechanisms of inflammation, changes again in the function of the cells that line, uh, increase in coagulation uh, problems, sympathetic activation, that's the fight or flight response, and then the downstream consequences, again, hypertension, atrial fibrillation, heart failure, coronary disease, lots of, uh, of, of things. This is a review by uh, our colleague, Jeremy Agazarians in uh, last year.
And here's just basically looking at the risk of having either any of these events, hypertension, this is uh, the two stages, obesity, central adiposity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and anything below the line of unity, the red line is an increase in risk in patients. And these are, these are patients who have uh, moderate or poor sleep versus normal sleep. So all of these things are downstream consequences of having sleep, uh, sleep disorders. Once again, sleep disturbances, sleep duration, frequently, how long should I sleep, doctor? Well, the simple answer is the sweet spot seems to be seven to eight hours. And less and more are both probably not in your, in your best interest. So people say, oh, I can get, a, I get along on six hours of sleep. Oh, I, you know, I don't have to sleep that much. The simple answer is probably you do. Uh, but it's not good to, to get more sleep uh, either. So it's very, uh, it's important. So we've developed this thing called the Stop Bang Questionnaire. And I do this for virtually all of my patients, new patients that I see. It's really straightforward. It, you, uh, you can, this is uh, something that's available online, so available uh, on, your, on your phone. And you answer these questions. Do you snore loudly? Yes or no. Do you feel tired, fatigued, sleepy during the daytime? Yes or no. Do you, does anybody say, oh yeah, you know what? You stop breathing at night. Yes or no. Are you being treated for high blood pressure? Uh, yes or no. How, how large are you? So your, your body mass index above or below 35 uh, kilograms per meter squared. How old are you above or below 50 years of age? What's your neck circumference? That's six, 40 centimeters is 16 inches. So I say, well, to men, I say, what's your collar size? And then gender, because gender plays a role. And so we have yes, no, and we add up the points. And so you can see that we have basically eight questions. Well, if any, if you have three uh, uh, answers of yes, then you probably need to have a test done for whether or not you have sleep disordered breathing. We have home sleep tests that can be done now at home. You don't have to go to a sleep lab, but it's really important to diagnose sleep disordered breathing because of the, of the association with risk. So again, in the AHA's essential eight, it says uh, the tips for success, all these things suggestion of, of, you know, what should we do to try to improve, improve our sleep? And these all relate to electronic devices. And I sum it all up into move it. Do not have your device in your bedroom with you. Take it out, have it charging in the living room. Because if it's not with you, it won't ring. The light won't come on. It won't ding when you get a message. All the electronics ought to get out of your bedroom, frankly. You shouldn't even have a TV in your bedroom. Because all of these things are associated with, with diminished sleep quality. So now I'm going to turn uh, the podium over to Amanda, who's going to talk a little bit to you uh, about uh, exercise. Like Dr. Long said, the Life Essential 8 exercise is part of it. And what's amazing is that exercise affects all these other life essentials. Exercise lowers blood pressure, increases good cholesterol, decreases blood sugars, decreases weight, aids in smoking sensation, and it decreases the amount of time it takes to get to sleep. So we know this is a great thing to do. So how do we go about getting a plan? Well, we create a plan off of the FIT principle, frequency, intensity, type, and time. 
So from the ACSM, American College of Sports Medicine, and the CDC, they came up with recommendations for structured exercise. You want to get 150 to 300 minutes a week of moderate to vigorous cardio. This can be biking, walking, dancing, anything that uses large muscles. You want to get in 30 to 60 minutes moderate exercise five days a week or 20 to 60 minutes vigorous exercise three days a week. Don't forget the strength training. You want to try and get in two to three days of this, making sure to get every muscle group. This usually takes about eight to 10 different exercises. Uh, you want to make sure you have a rest day in between. Flexibility is important. You want to try and get in two to three days a week and limit your sedentary activity. So you want to be up and moving every hour. Looking at these exercise uh, recommendations, how hard do we know moderate or vigorous intensity is? So they've come up with different methods. The RPE, Rating of Perceived Exertion Scale, a talk test, and the percentage of max heart rate. So from this slide, you can see moderate intensity is considered 11 to 14 on the RPE scale, 65 to 75% max heart rate. And if you're using the talk test, it's when it's hard to speak several words at once. Uh, vigorous is considered 15 to 17 on the RPE scale, 76 to 96% heart rate max. And on the talk test, it's when speaking and catching your breath while exercise is very challenging. So if a program has a constant moderate um, intensity exercise for the duration, it's considered a moderate intensity continuous training. If the program has alternating between vigorous and light intensity for the duration of the exercise, it's called HIT, high intensity interval training. So there's been extensive research done on HIT uh, training. Uh, research has ranged from looking at the appropriate population to comparing outcomes between the moderate and HIT training. So far, the research has shown that the HIT training is safe for all populations, athletes to heart failure. This recent study uh, done by Dr. Wei and colleagues, which is a meta-analysis, so a group of studies, looked at HIT training for adults with cardiovascular disease. What did they find out? They found out that individuals had greater or comparable cardiovascular fitness, diastolic blood pressures, high density lipid proteins, vascular function, and body compositions. All those were better compared to the moderate intensity training. They also looked at what made up the HIT program. And so most sessions were 30 minutes in duration. They consisted of four to 10 high intensity bouts. Each bout was one to four minutes. Uh, the active recovery was between one to three minutes. The HIIT training is done two to three days a week, making sure that you have, you don't have two consecutive days in. When I have started working with patients on the HIIT program, I made first sure that they were able to do 20 minutes of moderate exercise. Uh, then the first thing we do is a warm up. Warm up is very important. It doesn't matter what type of exercise you're doing. This warm up allows those blood vessels to dilate so those muscles can get the needed oxygen and nutrients. So we start off with a 30 seconds to one minute intervals, 15 to 17 RPE, followed by a two to three minute active recovery, usually at eight to 10 RPE. Uh, the person will continue to alternate the intensities for about 20 minutes. Uh, the person will keep this regimen for a couple of weeks and then increase as tolerated. The 
important key here is to keep the active recovery either the same amount as the intensity, the high intensity, or longer. And you want to make sure that you don't have two, again, two high intensity days right in a row. And I have not seen any studies that looked at the protocol where they had higher than four minutes for the high intensity. Another study um, by Ramos was another meta-analysis, and it looked at the high intensity versus the steady state, so moderate intensity. The re results were similar in that the HIT program produced quicker vascular changes than the moderate exercise group. So when looking at what intensity should I work at, it's a good idea to look at the pros and cons. From this slide, you can see that the pros and cons are listed and that the HIP program produced quicker cardiovascular and weight loss results. But it was a very hard program to stick with, and you may need help with the complex workouts. The moderate intensity continuous training still improves cardiovascular health, weight loss, and you still get that good fill endorphins without much discomfort. It just may take a little longer to achieve. So I'm going to turn it back to Dr. Long. Pardon me for not giving you the full introduction to Amanda. So uh, Amanda, uh, I met Amanda when she came to Denver Health in 2010. You can see on this very brief bio where she took over uh, our cardiac rehab program and basically directs uh, phase one, phase two, and phase three rehab programs. And just to let you know, uh, Denver Health is a safety net hospital. It has a, uh, a patient population that uh, is difficult. Uh, they are, have poor health literacy and a very poor literacy age, average education of third grade. And Amanda sort of single-handedly took over this program and it is, uh, has had absolutely remarkable results in terms of, of patients' sense of well-being, decreased readmission rates, and uh, I can't thank her enough for not only what she does for the patients in Denver, for, but obviously for stepping in for, uh, for Dawn uh, at, the last, at the last minute, clearly something she didn't have to do. So I'm very appreciative, of course. Okay, so now to Angie, who will uh, speak to the dietary side of this. Angie is, uh, ha came to the Prevention Center as our dietitian uh, right now three or four years ago, uh, maybe three, and uh, works extremely closely with all of our patients. She works with the cardiac rehab program uh, with Don Grandis and is totally uh, committed to meeting patients where they are in terms of dietary recommendations. And uh, the thing I love about Angie is that she um, has an absolutely fabulous uh, rapport with patients and as I say, doesn't, uh, doesn't meet patients with a draconian diet recommendations. She really works with people where they are uh, to try to, uh, to improve their, their health. So with that, Angie, I will turn it over to you. Wonderful. Nice to meet you all. And thank you so much, Dr. Long, for that really warm introduction. All right. So it's estimated that 80% of premature heart disease is preventable. Considering the rates of heart disease in this country, that's both the best and worst statistic that I've ever heard. A closer look reveals that poor diet quality is responsible for more death than any other risk factor, even surpassing smoking. What we ate, 
and more importantly, what we didn't eat in 2016 was linked to over half a million deaths in the United States. 84% of those deaths were due to cardiovascular disease. Meanwhile, it seems like every few months, a new diet emerges, each trying to stake their claim at America's next top diet. But what does the science actually tell us about what to eat to beat disease? Fortunately, prevention guidelines from our lead cardiology institutions provide some insights. They list the Mediterranean diet and plant-focused eating patterns as a class one recommendation. Let's take a look to find out why. The Mediterranean diet is less of a diet and more like an eating and lifestyle pattern. It's inspired by traditional eating habits of countries that border the Mediterranean Sea, including Spain, Italy, Greece, and Crete. Large long-term observational studies and randomized control trials in thousands of participants have demonstrated outcome data showing a decreased risk of heart attack, stroke, and cardiovascular disease. This plant-focused eating pattern emphasizes an abundance of colorful fruits and vegetables, as you can see there at the top, nuts, legumes, whole grains, and you guessed it, extra virgin olive oil. It even has its own food group. These are dietary staples. But because of the geographic region, fish and seafood are also prominent. They're a rich source of omega-3 fatty acids, you know, the good fat, right? Poultry, eggs, and dairy are included moderately, while red meats and sweets are seen as an occasional food. These are the smallest proportion of the diet. There's one more thing. The Mediterranean eating pattern also emphasizes not just what we eat, but how we eat. It embraces the most pleasurable aspects of eating. If you could time travel to a household in 1960s Crete, we would find family meals around a table, eating at a leisure pace, a variety of foods prepared locally and seasonally. Speaking of locally, here in California, we have a very diverse population. And one of the questions that I get most often is, do I need to eat only Mediterranean foods in order to benefit? The answer is not at all. Here are the key points. A healthy eating pattern like the Mediterranean can lower risk of heart disease, make it colorful, fruits, veggies, lentils, farro, maybe pair that with some fatty fish like salmon, and of course, top it off with some healthy fats like nuts, seeds, and olive oil. Remember, this is a way of eating. Lastly, whether it's with good company or alone, be sure to sit down, slow down, and savor your meal. The next dietary pattern I want to highlight tonight is the DASH diet. Now, DASH stands for Dietary Approaches to Stopping Hypertension. And like the name suggests, this diet has been shown to effectively lower blood pressure, as well as cholesterol, weight loss, heart disease risk, and type 2 diabetes risk. As you can see here on the slide to the left, it's pretty similar to the Mediterranean diet, right? Lots of fruits and veggies, like more than you think. Whole grains, healthy oils, a little more dairy, and a little more lean animal proteins. But where things are different, and this is important, is that the DASH diet 
specifically lowers sodium intake. In trials, researchers found a dose-response relationship when looking at sodium and blood pressure. The lower the sodium, the lower the blood pressure. Remember all those fruits and veggies? They contain important minerals like potassium, which actually helps to lower blood pressure even more. As a recap, less salt and a ton more fruits and veggies can help stop hypertension. So where do we go from here? Tonight, we've talked about just two examples of what a good diet is, but what a good diet is not is one size fits all. No diet is a good diet, not eaten, right? Consider your lifestyle and find what works for you. To anyone that's looking to improve their eating habits, that's such great news. Acknowledge where you're at and you know where you are in your health journey, where you want to go. For some, it may feel like it's a mountain to climb. Focus on taking that first step and set small goals that are realistic and achievable. No one likes to think about all the things they can't have or shouldn't have, especially at this time of year. So instead, I challenge you to start thinking about what you can add rather than you then subtract. Since less than 10% of adults in the U.S. are meeting their recommended fruit and veggie intake, I think it's safe to say you can start there first. If you need help, ask for it. Remember that heart disease is preventable. Talk to your health care team. And if you can, work with a registered dietitian to help you along the way. Wishing you all the best of health. And thanks, thank you so much for having me. You can have it back, Dr. Long. Great. Just as I, just as I expected. Beautiful. So I'm just going to sum up. Assessing risk, as I mentioned earlier, assessing risk in the secondary prevention world. In other words, I've somebody who says I've had a vascular event, heart attack, angina with stenting, stroke, TIA, uh, not including that with atrial fibrillation, diagnosis of peripheral arterial disease, an abdominal aortic aneurysm, or some arterial problem to the lower legs. Um, this is easy. The number needed to treat uh, to move the needle is low. Assessing risk and primary prevention is nuanced and requires a very good understanding of the degree of risk. These are the scoring algorithms, as well as the tolerance for accepting risk. And this is the glass of water example. In other words, any uh, two different people could look at a 10% risk in a different way. You could, the one person might go, well, my glass is 90% full. I'm feeling pretty good. Another person says it's 10% empty. I'm not feeling so good. That's all. That's that's the tolerance for accepting risk, both for the disease, as well as whether or not you're you have a high risk to avoid treatment or avoid behavioral change. So, number needed to treat is going to be higher than in the in the secondary prevention world. I think what we rely on is that for most of the things that we're talking about, certainly behavioral change the number needed to harm is usually quite high. Modifying behaviors is the clear low-hanging fruit. That's the smoking, that's the uh, uh, exercise, that's the diet. It's often, I think, the most difficult for patients to internalize. And the, the problem with that is because it, it is uh, behavioral. So I think it's key that if the behavioral modification you're asking of a patient is not sustainable by the patient, its value will be limited. 
And that's why I, I so appreciate the input from our exercise colleagues and, and from our diet uh, colleagues and, and Angie, because anybody can adhere to a draconian diet for a, a brief period of time. And they can maybe move the needle in terms of their weight and their, uh, and their cholesterol numbers and, and the like. And anybody can develop a really strong exercise program that's, uh, that's very aggressive. But if it's not something that you can't internalize to become a lifelong change, then it, it will have very limited benefit to you because treating atherosclerotic disease is not like treating a bacterial sore throat with an antibiotic or a urinary tract infection where after two weeks you can stop the medication because the disease is gone. This is not the case. This is a lifelong commitment. So I think it's really important that we, we as patients and as physicians uh, internalize these, uh, this thing. Treatment of genetic and preclinical risk is well-defined, uh, but we have to understand that in the, indeed the target, as I've suggested with blood pressure, but the same is true for, for cholesterol numbers, that the target can move. And that's frustrating for all of us when somebody says, well, wait a minute, didn't last year uh, a cholesterol and LDL of 130 was okay, and now you're telling me it needs to be 100. Or uh, two years ago, you told me my blood pressure was 130, and that was just fine. Now you're telling me that that that's too high. And we just, we learn uh, in medicine, we learn as we accumulate more and more data. And so sometimes these things uh, move and it is frustrating. Again, if the treatment strategy that we develop for blood pressure or cholesterol is also not sustainable, it has the same limited value. So again, we have to really have an appreciation for uh, trying to work with patients on understanding the importance of compliance and continued compliance. I'll just throw out a startling uh, statistic that after a heart attack, so somebody's had an event that their adherence to taking statins, that's the medication to lower cholesterol and lower subsequent risk is about 30 to 35% at one year. That means 65% of people who've had an event will have discontinued their statin at one year. And that really is, uh, is it's a horrible statement, I think, of our appreciation uh, uh, and our education of, uh, of the, these challenges. I think having honest and frank discussions with your provider are absolutely crucial to coming up with individual approaches to mitigating risk. So let's just to review, you need to stop smoking. If you smoke, and I mean anything, including vaping, it needs to stop. You need to get active and anything is better than nothing. I think as Amanda uh, said, you can get by with moderate intensity exercise. You can get do it with HIIT, uh, but I think you, you have to choose to get off the couch. You need to eat better. Uh, I think Mediterranean or DASH diets are the two that we seem to focus on. And I really want to emphasize what Angie said, that it's not just Mediterranean diet. It's, it's really working with Mediterranean lifestyle. I was just uh, in Italy, and if you watch the people in in Italy or in Europe, they move, they ride bikes, they walk, they uh, they generally have smaller portions on their plate, and they don't go back for seconds. So I think if we do portion control and really work on uh, on our activity levels, we'll be better off. Lose weight, improve sleep quality, and I think this is uh, again something we're just now beginning to appreciate manage blood pressure. I, when I talk to patients, I generally will say, 
I like your blood pressure to be at 120s over 70s or better 75% of the time. And if that's not the case, then we need to intensify your, your treatment. Now, it's really important to understand how to take a blood pressure. And I don't have time to go, to go uh, through this, but um, you basically need to do it the same way every time. You need to sit quietly in a chair for about five minutes. 10 is probably better, but five is, is usually adequate. And you take the blood pressure under those circumstances. You don't take it after running down from the bedroom to, to breakfast table or running in from the car. You have to sit quietly uh, and, and do the blood pressure. And then when you take it that way, that's when we get more reliable numbers. If you have a machine that you uh, uh, want to make sure it's working correctly, because if bad data is in, it's basically bad data in, bad data out. You need to take it to your doctor's office and you need to correlate it with uh, the machine in the doctor's office. You need to control cholesterol. In primary prevention land, I target uh, LDL cholesterol of 100 or a non, what's called the non-HDL cholesterol of 130. And that non-HDL is really easy. It's simple math. You take the total cholesterol, you subtract your HDL. That's the good fraction cholesterol. And that becomes your non-HDL. So in primary prevention land, I'm relatively strict. I like to hit uh, a non-HDL of 130 and an LDL of 100. If somebody's in secondary prevention land, they've had an event, their LDL needs to be less than 70 and their non-HDL needs to be less than 100. And we need to control blood sugar, particularly in the diabetic patient. And I would target uh, for a diabetic patient an A1C of seven and a half or lower that generally speaking avoids the morbidity of hypoglycemia, which can be uh, as, uh, as important as hyperglycemia in the frankly diabetic patient. So let me just tell you what I do. So I gather data, uh, see a new patient, I get a very comprehensive history, personal past medical history, surgical history, family history, along with all the behaviors. And I do a, a complete physical examination, obviously focusing on cardiovascular, but also uh, looking at, uh, at other things. Then I gather more data. So all that is easy. The, the, the history and physical part is straightforward, doesn't require anything but a stethoscope and a little bit of time. I, I like to gather more data and I like to do this before I see the patient so that I really can feel like I'm doing a comprehensive evaluation. And I get basic labs. I get a complete blood count. I get a complete metabolic panel, which is electrolytes plus liver function tests and simple things like calcium and uh, and the like. I get a simple lipid panel. I get something called a lipoprotein little a or LP little a. It's a genetic marker of risk. And I get, sometimes I get this thing called ApoB. I don't want you to focus on that uh, in specific. It really is non-HDL is kind of a poor man's ApoB for the majority of patients. I get a thyroid panel and I get a hemoglobin A1C. That's the marker of, of diabetic of a pre-diabetic state. It basically says, what's my blood sugar been for the last six weeks or so? It becomes a nice target to follow in both the diabetic or the, or the pre-diabetic patient. And I get inflammatory markers because we know that atherosclerosis is a, an inflammatory disease. And so that helps me risk stratify patients a little bit better. And then I gather more data. And so uh, you, you'll uh, hear uh, or uh, uh, have heard about coronary artery calcium. That's the CAC score, which is just that. It's a, a low energy CAT scan that uh, measures calcium in the coronary arteries. But in fact, sometimes we've already gotten 
the, the information that we want to know, which is calcium in a vascular territory. When somebody has a chest CT scan, or frankly, it was a recent report on vascular calcifications for mammograms being associated with, a, with a, an increased risk. And here's why. It's because when cholesterol gets deposited in an, in an artery wall, that over time, the body views that as an injury. And one of the things that the body likes to do in an area of injury is put bone down. That's calcium phosphate. It's the same calcium phosphate that exists in your bones, but it gets deposited into an artery wall. It becomes radio opaque, meaning that, uh, that it shows up on an x-ray. And when calcium is there, it means you have plaque. And so uh, if somebody has a, a past history of a chest CT scan done for whatever reason, and in the reading, it says vascular calcifications are noted, then it means you have atherosclerosis. So it may not be, uh, we call it preclinical atherosclerosis, meaning it's never resulted in an event, but there's your data. It says you have atherosclerosis. So again, I, I generally speaking, um, will use what we already have available to us to review in the past medical record. Or if somebody is wanting to better define their likelihood of, of having atherosclerosis already, um, again, generally a patient whose cholesterol is quite abnormal, I might offer them, I'll say, well, um, would you be more likely to uh, take a medication for your grossly abnormal cholesterol if I showed you that you already had atherosclerosis in, uh, in a vascular territory? Many times patients will say, yes, I want to know that. And so we get a coronary artery calcium scan if they haven't had one of these other things. So I try to get all this data together. And then I, I try to create, the, uh, again, the risk calculators of 10-year of risk and the risk calculators of lifetime risk. And then sit down with the patient and say, Here, here's what our risks are and here's what our options are in terms of treatment strategies. I'd like to treat behaviors and disease wherever I find it at whenever I find it. And again, this just is a, is a discussion with patients about in, individual risk and risk tolerance. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.